This is a Federal News Network podcast. It might be time for a whole new type of computer and communications network, one that's more resilient and more resistant to cybersecurity threats than networks as we know them today. That's the idea behind a program at the National Science Foundation called Resilient and Intelligent Next Generation Systems, or RINGS. Joining me with details, Acting Deputy Division Director Tiaga Nandagopal. Mr. Nandagopal, good to have you on. Thank you for having me here, Tom. It's a pleasure to be back on the show with you. Let's establish one thing here. Rings doesn't mean we're going to bring back token ring networks, are we? Absolutely not. <laughs> I date I'm both glad of you us. I remember that. You're <laughs> dating yourself there a little bit. I'm dating myself there a little bit. <laughs> so what do you envision first as the result of this program? And then we'll get into how the program works. Okay. I think we all know by now, uh, having gone through a year-long telework experience, that uh, we cannot live without our communication networks. We rely on them to do pretty much everything from ordering food to getting our work done. And we know that if these networks go down for a little bit, you know, your Wi-Fi conks out for a little bit, then you are in deep trouble. You know, you feel lost, you feel unproductive and unhappy, right? We have realized the value of these networks and we want to make sure that these networks continue to perform under any kind of duress, right? Whether it comes as a result of a security breach or a hacker trying to actively take down your network or somebody accidentally cutting down the cable down the street because they're trying to dig for something else or it's a weather phenomena or something that knocks out your service in the neighborhood. No matter what happens, we need people to feel connected and stay connected so they can continue to get the services that they rely on through digital means. And that is the outcome of this program. We intend to create a framework and a roadmap for how to build a resilient uh, system uh, that can help us stay connected forever. Now, we've heard about the idea of self-healing and resilient networks for quite some time now. Are the basic building blocks in place to build these things now, or are we needing new science here? I think it's a mixture of both. So in some places, so if you look at a network, so let's go back what a network we're talking about here, right? The, the network used to be your Ethernet cable and the switch behind it. Now, this is again 20 years before, right? Now your network is your cell phone, your uh, headset, your Bluetooth headset, uh, or, you know, all the way going back to the base station and the core network and the cloud, which is running you know, on a bunch of data centers sitting who knows where in the country and the servers that you're connecting to the other applications, right? The Googles and the YouTubes and Netflixes and your corporate networks and so forth, all of them. So do we know how to address resilient and self-healing in the context of a specific small network domain? Yes. Do we know how to do that on an end-to-end basis? Not really. So we think that we have building blocks for some of the pieces, but we need to look at this picture holistically and look at it from the service point of view, not just make sure the network survives. But the bigger point is you may lose one network, but perhaps you could connect to a different network. If your Wi-Fi goes down, Maybe you can use a cellular network. If your cellular network goes down, maybe you can use a satellite network. We have ways of connecting. If your network goes down, maybe you can use a neighbor's network, right? But we need to figure out how to connect all of these networks in a holistic fashion that the user does not see any disruption in service, even though the individual pieces may fail and recover over time. And you see this as a function needed, not just for consumers, but also for corporate and agency and organizational networks, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, it's more than vital for them. It's essential for their survival. If you look at a consumer, right? Yes, for maybe you're watching YouTube and uh, streaming Netflix, you probably don't need this. But if you're doing banking, if you're relying on talking to your doctor, that's a corporate network on the other side. 
So enterprise network that requires that resilience so they can provide the assurance and the quality of service that the customer expects when they communicate with them, right? And this cuts across not just customer-facing businesses, but also bank-to-banks, right? Business-to-business services uh, and government-to-business services, right? So governments need this as well. So we see this as a vital part of everything that is underlying the digital infrastructure, especially as we go forward. We're speaking with Tiaga Nandagopal. He's acting deputy division director for the Division of Computer and Network Systems at the National Science Foundation. And to get here, tell us programmatically what you're trying to do here. Do you have a grant program? How does that all work? So this is a grant program. NSF runs grant programs, uh, many uh, by count. Uh, we have an ongoing continuous program that funds research in, this, in these areas, like individual advancements in technology in the networking and computing systems. Uh, we fund $100 million a year typically on these awards. But what we have done with this specific program is to say, yes, we want those advancements in those technologies, but we also would like those designs to be made from the ground up with the resilience in mind, right? So we are specifically calling out the resilience as a key design criteria from day one as part of the basic design of the system, which may force a rethinking of how we design our networks, right? And that is the main differentiator between this program and others. We have been joined in this effort by 11 other partners, nine leading companies. You know, these include Apple, Ericsson, Google, IBM, Intel, Microsoft, Nokia, Qualcomm and VMware, and two federal agencies, the Department of Defense, uh, the Office of Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, and the National Institute of Standards and Technology, each of which have a very clear stake in ensuring that the networks that they build, that they continue to support, are going to be resilient and highly performing. So they have joined us as partners, and each of them are putting money into the program. So it's a total of $40 million, and we are going to make grants, each up to a million dollars, and these grants would run uh, for a three-year period. These grants would be likely made effective early 2022, which is another five, six or seven months from now. And we are hoping that the outcomes of this research would immediately translate as soon as possible because of the active involvement of all of these different partners who each have an extensive R&D program on their own, that these outcomes that come from this program would map into translatable standards and products very, very quickly. And I notice none of the carriers and the big telecom companies are not mentioned here. Sounds like you don't want a system where somebody writes a script and therefore one network fails over to another network as opposed to building something from the ground up that does that. We are looking at everything, right? And there is a, I, I just want to make sure that your readers are aware that the absence of carriers is not intentional. We have been working with the partners that I just mentioned for many, many uh, years now. And therefore, it is just easier for us to get started. You know, you know, any partnership involves, you know, coming to agreement on the terms of the research and signing up, uh, you know, memorandum of understanding and so on. Logistically, it just happened to be easier for us to get started with this group of people we have worked with before. However, NSF stands open and we are already talking to multiple other companies who, having heard this announcement, are now wanting to come and join us in the subsequent phase of this particular program. So we expect, you know, and we our, our, arm, our doors are open to carriers and others to join because we do see everybody as being equally benefiting from this kind of an effort. And do you expect that the intellectual property so developed would be open source? We do not require that to be open source. However, the awardees who are likely to be academic institutions have their own policies 
and they could choose to make things open source, right? So NSF does not constrain the ability of institutions to decide what kind of intellectual property they want to produce as a result of it. Many institutions do have active policies that say everything we do will be open source. Some don't, and we respect that choice that they have, right? That's just the policy of the federal government that has always been that way, and we continue to do so. And our partners agree on this as well. That is one of the interesting pieces that I want to highlight, that while many of the companies that you have seen in this partnership are sometimes known to be very protective of the intellectual property, they do understand that in this kind of a research that requires us to rethink how we build networks from scratch, we may have to go back to the basics. And it's kind of pre-competitive. They really want to give everybody a chance to see what comes out, recognizing that anything that comes out, any new early concepts that come out, could eventually lead to intellectual property for everyone down the road, right? You can unleash new industries, new types of products and that we haven't heard of today. So they are being very open and are supporting the same flexibility that the government would like to give to its awardees on intellectual property. And what is the status of the program in terms of the timeline at this point? At this time, we released the solicitation just last month, and we have a webinar for proposers to understand more about the program and ask any questions about it coming up on May 27th uh, at 2 p.m. And once that happens, we are hoping that we will get proposals. The deadline for that is uh, July 29th, and it will take about six months for us to get all the reviews and everything done, uh, get the recommendations worked out with all our partners, and we expect to have awards announced by, I would say, uh, sometime in uh, the first three months of 2022. Tiago Nandagopal is an acting deputy division director for the Division of Computer and Network Systems at the National Science Foundation. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. It was a pleasure and looking forward to seeing your members show up at some of our events. Thank you. All right, good. We'll post this interview plus a link to more about the Rings program at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. 
One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, What comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees and, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick. Thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's 
Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.